Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Have a good night's rest? Yes, nice and early this morning. Glad to see each one of you here. Um, have you been enjoying the conference so far? Been blessed as well. It's nice, again, especially the beautiful setting as we were walking over this morning. I told my wife, well, I think we should go walk on the beach instead of coming here. And she was like, I don't think that would work, you know. Somebody would miss our presence. But it's, it's a blessing to be with you. Um, yesterday morning, as we began <clears throat> looking at or surveying the cross, we spent time considering the offense of the cross. And just, again, in brief summary, we looked at how really offensive, culturally offensive, this message of the cross was when it began to be proclaimed. Um, again, if we think of trying to devise a message that would reach people, we wouldn't have come up with the idea of a crucified redeemer in the first century because it ran counter to everything people thought. And that's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, you know, this is foolishness. This is an offense. It is a stumbling block. It's absurd. And yet, as we look through the Gospels, we really find that they are simply crucifixion narratives. And as Kelly did so well last night, bringing us piece, piece by piece through the Gospel of Mark, um, you know, one-third of the Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life. And all of the Gospels really are crucifixion narratives. And to have something like that in that world, it's really astounding to me. I mean, and the more we think about it, the more we contemplate it, it's a tremendous testimony to the veracity, to the truth of the message. Otherwise, how would something so offensive gain traction in that society? Again, it's really because it's the one who died on the cross that transforms what really is a cultural offense and still is offense to our human nature, but transforms it to something that we glory in, to something, um, as we mentioned yesterday as well, that for the Christian, the cross, if you too remove the cross, it would be like blotting out the sun from the sky. Acts of the Apostles, page 209. The cross brings us near to God and reconciles us to him. Again, yesterday I mentioned that there were literally thousands of individuals, Jewish people, that had been crucified by the Roman authority. I mentioned the rebellion just around the time of Christ's birth. We clearly understand when the Jerusalem was destroyed, Josephus tells us that they were running out of wood, there wasn't enough wood to make crosses, and there wasn't enough room to place the crosses. Because all these individuals that had been captured, Rome was crucifying them as a symbol of their authority. But it's interesting that as we go back in Jewish history, and you go back really in the history of the world, but particularly in Jewish history, and you see all these Jewish rebels or or we wouldn't want to call them rebels. Um, freedom fighters, maybe, would be a better word. You know, trying to get their liberty, but they're being crucified. It's amazing that in all that history, there's no story of a Jewish martyr crucified, except for one. But he really wasn't a martyr. He was a savior. 
But again, the, the cross was so revulsive that there were no legends or stories that came up about this individual, this hero who ended up being crucified because it was offensive. Except for one Jewish Galilean from a little backwater town called Nazareth who, whose life transformed the world. And his life needs to transform ours as well today. And that's why this morning we want to survey the power of the cross. And here's a, a quotation that's blessed me. It's from the 1880 Materials, page 843. And it says, the preaching of Christ crucified has been strangely neglected by our people. Interesting thought there. And then particularly what follows. It is this neglected part of the ministry which will be found the great instrument in the conversion of souls and in leading to the high standard of holiness which every church needs in order to become a living church. That's a really wonderful thought that here we have this, we want people to be ready for the second coming, amen? You know, we're, we're living toward that great event in history. And so there needs to be this reformation, there needs to be this revival, there needs to be this transformation. Church members need to see their part in medical missionary work, not just medical professionals. Church members need to see their, their role in being engaged in ministry. So my work with OCI, that's one of my privileges, is to go around the world and help encourage lay people to get engaged in ministry and the church that I volunteer as pastor for. Um, and I'm gone almost half the year, you can ask some of my church members. Uh, yet it runs because lay people have caught the vision that God is calling them into service. What motivates that? The preaching of Christ crucified. That's the great instrument in converting souls and bringing to this high standard of holiness. So why is it so strangely neglected? What is it about the cross? What's the power of the cross? Well, if we were to think about the death of Jesus, there are lots of different metaphors that we could use to discuss this great event. You know, the cross, uh, perhaps we could look at it as a diamond. And if you turn the diamond different ways or a prism in different ways, when light hits it, like these beautifully bright white lights in the corners of the room, when light hits it, it refracts and you get to see a prism full of colors, right? And so, we could approach the cross from different directions, different angles. And we can see lots of different metaphors. And here are some of them. We have been adopted, right, into the, into the family of God. What a warm, you know, relational picture of God's calling us as being orphans back into his presence. We have been redeemed. Again, uh, a, a nice metaphor. Reconciled, forgiven, justified, ransomed renewed, all these different word pictures that God's given to us in the scriptures to help us understand more of a subject that we're really going to be studying throughout eternity. The problem with metaphors is that they all break down at a certain point. If you push a metaphor too far, it begins to lose its power. So for example, let's just, for example, take the example, the metaphor of being ransomed, being ransomed. So um, there's obviously in a transaction, there's a purchase in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, I think it's Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he, the Son of Man, has come to give his life as a, a ransom for, 
for many. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says that Christ gave himself in due time as a ransom for all. So there's this exchange. Who did he pay the ransom to? Well, that's where the metaphor breaks down. If we begin to push the metaphor to the point, well, okay, so who did he pay the ransom to? Ancient church uh, writers, church fathers, they said that Christ paid the ransom to the devil. Um, and so, you know, metaphor breaks down if we push it too far. But metaphors still have tremendous power. Now, just bear with me a little, little bit. Uh, there's a book written by two men, Green and Black, I think the last one's last name is, and it's called Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. And it sounds a great title, but when you get into the book, well, before we do that, let me notice, let me quote what they say here in relation to metaphors. We should not be tempted to confuse the various metaphors with the actuality of the atonement. It's on page 65. We must move beyond the temptation simply to read their words and metaphors into our contemporary world, page 111. But what are they saying? They realize that metaphors break down at a certain point, and so they're concerned that we just don't take the metaphors of scripture and transplant them into the 21st century. So for example, there's a metaphor of being freed from slavery, and that was very powerful in the first century, but in our century, at least in the United States, there's not too much of us, too many of us engaged or uh, afraid of being slaves, physically. But their point is this, and this is uh, where I really want to drive at home. The two metaphors that these individuals and many others have the most problem with are the metaphors that relate to Christ's cosmic victory. In other words, they will say, you know, this whole idea about defeating satanic powers, that was good in the first century, but for today, the metaphor doesn't work. The second area in which they, they have trouble is believing that Christ really was a substitute and there had to be some kind of penalty, the legal metaphor. Those are the two metaphors that they really focus on the most. It's interesting that those two metaphors, to me, are the greatest demonstration of where the power of the cross is. That Christ's victory really is a victory over a real adversary who's trying to destroy us. And his reconciling work really is to bring us back into harmony with God. So metaphors, really important. And although their title of their book is Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, I think they try to avoid the scandal of the cross. In other words, this idea, which is very common in New Testament studies today, really echoes what Dr. Kellogg was saying at the turn of the last century. You know, that God's just kind of everywhere, and it's all all right, and, you know, just breathe in the Holy Spirit with every breath. Beautiful thoughts, but sophistry. So we need to be careful, on one hand, of pushing a metaphor too far. On the other hand, we don't want to lose the truths of the metaphors. And those two, in particular, Christ's victory over opposing cosmic power, Satan and his hosts, and the truth of our need of reconciliation back to God are two pictures, metaphors, truths of the gospel, points of the power of the gospel that are being attacked today. 
in the secular world, in the, excuse me, in the New Testament studies world, and even within Seventh-day Adventism as well. So let's examine one of those this morning, and we're going to examine the other one tomorrow morning. Um, and I'd like to this morning look at the concept of reconciliation. The Bible tells us very clearly that we have a problem. Romans 5, 10, and Romans 8, 7, we are enemies of God, enemies in our minds, enemies in our actions, enemies in, in the bent of our nature. We are enemies with God. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 tells us, of course, that we are separated from God. Sin makes this gulf, this impassable gulf, a separation between us and God. And as Colossians 1:21 tells us, we're hostile in our mind with God. We need to be reconciled, not only to God, but frequently reconciled to one another. Um, you know, it was mentioned yesterday again how, I think it was Dr. Landless who was talking about how all of us need to be pulling together, pulling together, pulling together for the one great accomplishment of communicating the gospel. And you know, it's amazing. Um, sorry. You know, when you start talking to people, it probably happens in like little conversations. All of a sudden, your mind starts going to another topic here. And I started thinking about, you know, tensions and competition. And, you know, even in medical missionary work, it's there. Who gets the credit for things? You know, it really would be wonderful if we just all were, hey, if Jesus gets the credit, if a soul's touched, praise the Lord. Whatever label is on it, that is fantastic. That would be a different topic. But we all need to pull together. We need this reconciliation. Several months ago, my wife heard a song by Michael Card, the great philosopher poet, who said that human tears are older than the rain. And that really made a powerful impact in my mind. Human tears are older than the rain. In other words, broken relationships, this need for reconciliation between us and God and with one another, have pre-existed the falling of rain. Rain didn't happen until the flood. Human tears happened in the Garden of Eden. And so this broken relationships between us and God and between us and one another is a very old problem. I am grateful that God in Christ has solved that problem. And it's not simply a word picture to point us to a truth. It is a truth. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5. And it's a, one of the dangers of being at a conference in which the title is cross-training. You know that all the other speakers that speak before you or after you Someone's going to touch your verse here and there. Um, and so every presentation, I'm like, oh, there they go. But fortunately, there's still plenty of material in these passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, 
We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a tremendous passage. So let's look through this passage bit by bit, um, chewing on it slowly. You know, let's kind of take this. And so let's go back to verse 18. And as I said yesterday, the reason the cross is transformed from simply being a societal offense to being the place where we glory is because of the identity of the one on the cross. It was the death of the one dying there, who it was, God incarnate, that transformed the cross because it reveals who God is. And Paul brings that out again here in First excuse me, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, uh, chapter five, in verse eighteen. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. So the first thing we see here is that when we look at the cross, we see God revealed. We see the Father's purpose in Christ. All these things are from God. We're well familiar with individuals sometimes, and perhaps we've had this problem ourselves where we would pray to someone, and you know, we're, it's almost as if uh, Christ is trying to persuade the Father to act in a loving manner toward us. That is a complete misrepresentation of the gospel. You know, it tells us in... John chapter 16, 25, 26, you know, I'm, the Father himself loves you. I don't have to persuade the Father. So all these things are from God. We see that this is God's purpose in Christ. This becomes very important for us because those individuals that want to undermine the substitutionary aspect of Christ's death and the legal framework, sometimes you know, they make this huge separation. And uh, I remember one preacher kind of mocking the, this view of Christianity by saying, uh, so here's the father and here's the son. Oh, I love you. Bam, hits him with his you know, wrath. Oh, I love you. Bam, hits him with his wrath. As though the father and the son are at odds in the cross. That's not the truth at all, my friend. That is a warped caricature. All these things are from God. It is God's purpose in Christ. We see God acting in Christ, as becomes clearer in the passage. God's purpose is brought out in Christ. The other thing that I want to emphasize here, the text says, all this, all these things are from God. How much is left over if all of it belongs to God? How much? Nothing, thank you, nothing. If all of it belongs to God, nothing is left over. All of this is from God. That means you and I are not making a contribution in this arrangement. It's not as though God's wanting to negotiate with us and we bring a part and he brings a part. All of this is God's doing. 
in Christ. And so that becomes the next thought here, that Christ is the agent. We look carefully at the passage. Um, All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, verse 19, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Notice the two ways Paul describes it. Through Christ as the agent, but God was also where? In Christ. Now, we can understand that different ways. We could say that God in Christ, still a little bit of a distance, was reconciling the world. Or we could say, no, God in Christ was doing this. Christ is the agent. God the Father is revealed. The Godhead is revealed in the crucifixion. There's a painting. Sorry, I forgot the name of the the painter, the artist that did it, but it's a, it's a depiction of the crucifixion. And you see the cross, there's Christ on the cross, and there's dark, there's lightning bolts there, and there's this dark cloud surrounding the cross trying to represent the darkness that took place at Calvary. And, and clearly, as you first look at the picture, that's what you see. You see Christ, and then you see the darkness around it. But the more closely you look at the picture, you see that in the cloud enveloping the cross is the, the symbol, the presence of God the Father. And that's really the truth, that God was in Christ. God is there. The anguish that Christ felt at the cross, you know, again, is a revelation of who God is, of what God's been feeling from eternity Again, as Kelly brought out last night, you know, from eternity, God's been feeling this anguish, the separation. The cross simply manifests itself, manifests it for us. All this is from God. This is God's plan. This is the plan from the Godhead from before eternity, before anything was created. The Godhead is there, and they're thinking, you know, we really, we're going to create, and, and I have no idea how God relates to time. Time is a little bit of a human construct for us that came about when everything was created. Um, but from God, eternity passed and been thinking, you know, there's going to be this amen conference and there's going to be people there and I want to spend eternity with them and how am I going to do that? And the answer is the cross. Man, sorry, that's amazing. Think about the all-powerful, omniscient, continually existent creator, the, the Godhead, having all eternity to think of a way to save us And they come up with the the cross? Really? Yeah. Offensive, shame, but it's the place of the exchange. It's the place where God manifests himself. It's the place where God reconciles us to himself. And he does it in Christ. Christ is the agent in Christ and through Christ. And Christ is that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let's look back again at the text, pull out another piece here. All of this is from God. Christ is the agent. God is working in Christ and through Christ. But let's look at the tenses, the verb. Again, back in verse 18, all these things are from God who, what's the word? Reconciled, tense, past tense, us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, namely, this is the ministry of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And it's given to us the word of 
reconciliation. From God's point of view, the reconciliation is accomplished. It's finished. God has reconciled, past tense, the world to himself. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, of course, we uh, too often think of God a little bit like Santa Claus, who's making a list and he's checking it twice and he wants to find out if we've been naughty or nice. I don't want to minimize at all the fact that there's a judgment and there are records in heaven, whatever that metaphor tries to convey to us. Uh, I'm sure there's not scrolls there, but there, there's some kind of records, of, of course, of our thoughts and our actions and everything, no question. But if we think God's just up there looking down and trying to say, you know, I see it, uh, I saw what you thought, mm, okay, that's directly contrary to the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Sorry, first of all, the reconciliation is accomplished at God's side of the deal. All of this is God's doing. We are not entering into an arrangement where we can barter with God, you know, I'll do this if we can be reconciled, or I'll do this to help the reconciliation process. We can accept the reconciliation. We can rejoice in the re reconciliation. We can reject the re reconciliation, but we cannot change the reconciliation. That happened at the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he's given to us this word of reconciliation. It is finished on God's side. Uh, as we think about the reconciliation, it's not as though we're... Well, you know what it's like in a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. It's always two sides, right? Well, not probably all the time. Sometimes it's probably more the husband's part, right, dear? Uh, so, but in a marriage relationship, you know, it takes two sides. There's this, okay, I'm sorry, oh, I said this, and reconciliation takes place. That's not the way it is with us and God. We, the, we are the offending party, no, no mistake about that. We're the ones who have transgressed his law. We're the ones who have rebelled. We're the ones that are enemies in our mind and in our hearts and in our actions and in our desires. We are the offending party, but God is the one who is taking the initiative in bringing the reconciliation together. And then he wants us to respond. To open our hearts to embrace the reconciliation, not two parties coming together. One party doing the reconciling, the other party, if we have two parties, responding in that reconciliation. But how does this happen? Well, let's look a little further in the text. There are both negative and positive aspects of this reconciliation, negative and positive aspects of it. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, let's go back to verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The negative side is what? What is he not doing? Not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against them. And um, the Amplified Bible, which used to be very popular, but the Amplified Bible adds this, not counting their trespasses against them, but canceling them. 
kind of bringing in the idea from the book of Colossians chapter 2, where the certificate of debt, which is against us, which is contrary to us, has been lifted up, taken away, erased, and nailed to the cross. Not counting our trespasses against us. There's, what's our picture of God? What's our picture of Christ? What's our picture of what's taking place in heaven? It's God looks down, you know, yeah, hmm, I see that, I see that. Or is our picture of God, oh, I just love you so much, I want to spend eternity with you. And I'm going to do everything I can to make that possible. That's the whole purpose of the sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary that I can dwell among them. God's great desire to be with us for eternity. And so how do I get rid of this offense? How do I get rid of the sin? How do I get rid of the separation? How do I bring us together? Well, I do it at the cross, not counting their trespasses against them, but canceling them. That's the negative side, if we could call it a negative side. But then there's a positive side a little later on in the text, um, in verse Skipping our part here for a couple of verses, going down to verse 21. He made him, that is God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, who had no experience with sin, had never, never sinned in thought or action, although he felt the temptation of sin. He knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the positive side. That's the exchange. That's the substitution metaphor that people don't like these days that Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for the sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified in the righteousness in which we have no share, Desire of Ages 25. And there's that great exchange that takes place. So on the negative side, God's not counting our trespasses against us. Somebody should say amen to that. Unless, you know, maybe medical missionaries really have no offenses that they're worried about. But I'll tell you, the people you meet do. People are aching with guilt. And, and I'm sure you know much better than I do that that kind of ache and that guilt and that remorse eats away at the life forces and brings illness and sickness. You, you all know that much better than I do. But to, to bring a message, you know, God's not counting your sins against you. God's embraced you. God loves you. God wants to be with you forever. What liberation, what healing. And then there's this exchange, substitution, in a legal framework. God, Christ, who knew no sin, is made to be sin. What does that mean? You look at the cross, that's what it means. God somehow and Christ in some kind of way, have been, having been together for eternity, endure separation between the two of them, which is incomprehensible to our human mind. How does the sinless one become counted as sin? I don't know. That's why we're going to study this for eternity. But then the other side is that you and I can be made the righteousness of God in him. What do we bring to this exchange? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to my cross I claim. We're empty, we're impoverished, we're enemies. We're, we're fighting against God continually in our minds, in our hearts, in our actions, almost all the time, even at an amen conference on Sabbath morning. And yet God is pulling us back to himself. I love you, he says. I've reconciled you. I've done everything I can. I'm doing everything I can positive side and the negative side. So 
Let me share a couple of quotations. This is from uh, Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. Ellen White's writings. Our sins were laid on Christ, punished in Christ, put away in Christ, that his righteousness might be imputed to us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Laid on Christ, punished in Christ, put away in Christ. Uh, several weeks ago, I was down in Cuba. There's a gentleman, Henry Stubbs, some of you may have know, know Henry, who's been working down in Cuba for many years, and he's been supporting Bible workers and trying to train lay medical missionaries you know, to do simple treatments in different areas. And he had a kind of a convention. It was the first time in Cuba in a long time where a public building in Havana was um, rented to hold a meeting. And it was great. There were quite a number of Bible workers there and pastors, and on Sabbath, there were probably 800, 1,000 people there. A great opportunity to come together and, and share with the individuals there. By the way, sorry, this is a, an appeal from Henry to Amen. He would love to get a group from Amen to come down there and do some medical outreach. So Danny, Henry Stubbs, get in touch with him. Um, and so while we were there, I had a translator. Most of my translators were very good, but then in one morning, one afternoon, the seminary wanted to give one of their students an opportunity to translate. And so the student was translating for me. And at the end of his, at the end of the sermon, he came up and he said, oh, I made eight mistakes. I'm so sorry. And I was like, well, I think you made more than eight. Um, and he, oh, I'm really sorry. I said, it's OK. I forgive you. And then you know, 20 minutes later, you know, I made eight mistakes. I'm so sorry. I was like, yeah, it's OK. Don't worry about it. Half an hour later, you know, oh, I made eight mistakes. I'm so sorry. And so I told him this illustration uh, that you've probably heard before of a guy that's driving his car and he hits his neighbor's dog, kills it. And he brings the dead dog to his neighbor's house and he says, I'm so sorry, I killed your dog. And the neighbor's like upset. I understand, you killed my dog. Let's bury it. They take it in the backyard, they bury it. Next morning, 7 o'clock, the neighbor rings at his other neighbor's, the neighbor who hit the dog rings at his neighbor's house. 7 o'clock, the neighbor opens the door and there's the guy again with the dead dog. Saying, you know, I'm really sorry I killed your dog. It's like, okay, well, let's bury it. So, you know, they bury it, you know. That evening, 5 o'clock after work, I'm really sorry I killed your dog. You get the point, right? Christ has taken care of our guilt and sin. We need not go around wondering if we've been forgiven. Now, it's true. If we're clinging to sin, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sincere and honest heart individuals who just cannot grasp that God is not counting their trespasses against them. There's a quotation from E.J. Wagner who was writing in the present truth, United Kingdom, um, and he brings out the whole idea from 2 Corinthians 5 that God is not counting, not imputing our sins to us. And he says, it is not the sins of their lives that condemn, condemn men, because those have been taken care of at the cross, but the fact that with the chance of getting rid of the sins, they prefer to retain them. That's a really important point. It's not just our past sin. We have been forgiven. Christ is not counting our sin against us, but it's the fact that because we can get rid of them, we choose to hold on to them. And then he quotes John chapter 3 and uh, verses 17. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light. 
Again, another quotation from Ellen White from the Pacific Union Recorder. Christianity is not a collection of rules and regulations, but a wonderful prescription in following which man obtains a healthy body and a sound mind. But how frequently have we made Christianity a collection of rules and regulations? Rather than seeing it as a prescription to bring us health, too often we communicate it as this, 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 and this. Christ gave his life for those who accept life through him. He says to the trembling sinner, lean on me. I am the propitiation for your sins. Propitiation, that is a big and a uh, despised word today in New Testament studies. Propitiation. You mean this is the where God brings humanity and God back together. Well, that's what the Bible says. That's what Ellen White says. I'm appreciative of that. I am the propitiation. I'm the atonement. I'm the sacrifice. I'm the substitute. I'm your means of reconciliation for your sins. I am your justifier, your righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Shall we not avail ourselves of the power that he has placed in our hands for the recovery of blessing lost through disobedience? This is the prescription. Come to the cross. Believe God's not counting your sins against you. Believe that God is revealed in Christ at the cross. See the power of the cross for a transformed life. With his stripes, we are healed. Let's go back to our text. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, kind of parts that I missed, skipped there. We're starting back in verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Praise God. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Or as Ellen White so beautifully just put it, he's committed to us this prescription of health. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, accept the reconciliation. Be reconciled to God. We become agents of reconciliation. This is the prescription of medical missionaries to take the message of the gospel, to bring it to sin-sick individuals, people who are struggling and anxious and perplexed, and tell them what God has done for them. And notice the pathos, the, the beauty with which Paul says this. Verse 20. We're ambassadors. Okay, well, that's a nice privileged position to be an ambassador, to be a representative, representative of, for Christ or on behalf of Christ. But not only that, again in verse 20, it's when we speak, when someone comes into your office or you meet somebody, you're ministering to someone in some context, you are, it's as though God is speaking through you to that person. As though God was making an appeal through you. Be reconciled. Entreating us wonderfully, compassionately, drawing us back. What a privilege. 
to be an ambassador for Christ, to be a medical missionary, to be a Christian, to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, living at the end of time, where every person we meet, we can see, yeah, you know, I'm an ambassador. God's going to use me to speak to you. And here's the prescription. God loves you. He's not counting your sins against you. He's made reconciliation. He's calling you back to himself. What an amazing opportunity that we have. Um, C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, uh, makes a comment. He says, you know, there are no ordinary individuals in this world. That every person we meet has a destiny. And he goes on and he describes it in his wonderful way with words, you know, every person we meet, you know, wherever it is, they're a person of destiny. They're either destined for eternal life with God or eternal separation. There are no ordinary people. Person that cleans our room in this hotel, person that serves us, person that cuts us off in line. There are no ordinary people. Everyone needs to hear this opportunity to say, I want to be reconciled. And we are the agents. We're the physicians. We're the medical missionaries. Here's the prescription. Even to the person that irritates you the most. And I know that in each of our little societies and cultures, there's some kind of a strata that takes place. But we need to break that. And we need to realize that God is calling us to minister to everyone. There are no ordinary people. We are agents of reconciliation. Throughout our time together, I think Dr. Lamless did it the first day and then Kelly did it last night, people brought our attention to the fact that Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. Uh, Dr. Landless referred to the Gospel of Luke last night. Kelly referred to the Gospel of Mark. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. We're agents of reconciliation. We're ambassadors. We need to know what our message is. We need to know that Christianity is not just a list of rules and regulations, but it's a wonderful prescription for health as we communicate this. Matthew chapter 6. This is a parallel passage to what Kelly was sharing last night. But unfortunately, I'm fortunate, I'm grateful rather, that neither one of them emphasized what I want to this morning. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, and as Dr. Landless brought out, Luke adds the word daily there. Deny himself and do what? What does he say? A little louder, please. A little bit more volume. Thank you. You guys are really quiet. Take up his cross. Do you know what that means? To the people that Jesus said that to? I mean, you know, we use that expression in lots of different ways. Well, that's the cross I have to bear, this, that, and the other thing. Take up your cross. Who picks up a cross? 
people that are going to get crucified, naked, chained, up front, nailed, beaten, flogged, rebels, slaves. Take up your cross. If I were one of the disciples, people like, what has gotten into Jesus? We minimize the roughness, the impact of that statement today. Pick up your cross. That means get ready to die, brother. Get stripped of all your self-righteousness, all your pride, all your arrogance, all your position, everything you're depending on, all your successes, all your titles, all your knowledge. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Get ready to die. You want to be an ambassador? Be crucified. Is it any wonder that the preaching of the cross is strangely neglected among us? That's an offensive message. That's the message, though. You want to be an ambassador? Get ready to die. Think about it in every aspect of your life. What your home's like, how you manage your money, how you manage your time, who you interact with, how you look at people. Get ready to die. That's what Jesus is saying. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross every day, every moment, and follow me. That's what Jesus is calling us to, to be medical missionaries. To really have self be crucified. To really understand we bring nothing to this transaction with God except our need. But again, as we read yesterday, to the soul that feels its need, nothing is withheld. The world is our mission to- field, excuse me. <coughs> the world is our field of missionary toil. We are to go forth to our labor surrounded with the atmosphere of Gethsemane and Calvary. I love that picture. Those in our sanitariums, well, those in our lifestyle centers, those in our hospitals, those in their dental offices, those in their doctor's offices are to take advantage of the opportunities given to them to set before the sick and suffering the restoring efficacy, the power, the ability that there is in Christ for the salvation of soul and body. We are in this world to lift the cross of Calvary. And as we lift this cross, we will find that it lifts us. 12 Manuscript Release, page 60. Want to be a medical missionary? Of course you do. You're here at a men conference. You've been coming for a long time. Many of you, some of you your first time. You want to be engaged in in lighting the world with God's glory? Of course we do. Who wouldn't be living at the end of the time wanting to be engaged with that? Lift the cross. Learn what it means to die to self and to follow Christ. Understand the full, complete demands that are called upon us as we yield ourselves to him. Also understand the tremendous exchange that takes place as God gave himself in the person of Christ to reconcile us to himself, treating Christ as we deserve, that we could be treated as he deserved throughout eternity. Are you willing to be reconciled? You're willing to lift the cross? That's God's call for us. That's the secret to successful medical missionary work in all of its beauty. As we lift this cross, we will find it lifts us. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, it's so hard for us here to feel the power of those words in Corinthians and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we thank you for your spirit to make these words and the words in your scriptures and the words that we share to make them reality in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you're not counting our trespasses against us. Thank you that you've given us a ministry of reconciliation. Thank you that you have called us to go to a world that's hurting and in anguish and looks for things for its fulfillment and be able to say to them, would you be reconciled? Accept the reconciliation. Teach us, Father, to learn how to lift this cross. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.